This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We have a big show for you today. Two Paralympians who lost limbs in the same accident are trying to defend gold together. Later, go inside a place thousands of Coloradans pass every day on I-70 and wonder about. Plus, more from our series talking with World War II vets. But we're going to start with politics and Tuesday night's precinct caucuses, a crucial step in Colorado elections. Only Democrats took a straw poll. And these are preliminary numbers in the governor's race and non-binding. Former state treasurer Carrie Kennedy came out on top with 50 percent of the vote. She is counting on the caucus route to land on the primary ballot versus gathering signatures. Congressman Jared Polis got a little over 30 percent of caucus goers votes, followed by Mike Johnston, then Noel Ginsburg and finally Eric Underwood. The current lieutenant governor, Donna Lynn, didn't take part. Let's get a taste of these grassroots meetings. Michael Elizabeth Sackis begins our coverage in Jefferson County. Are you here for the caucus? Yeah, all right, just find your last name along the table, okay? People from more than 45 precincts nearly filled the auditorium at Alameda High School in Lakewood Tuesday night. They were there to start the process of nominating a Democratic candidate for Colorado's next governor. Lucas O'Byrne was caucusing for the first time. He says he's not one to even vote usually because he feels candidates don't represent him. But he says this past year of the Trump administration has made him realize the consequences of that. If I get involved when it's at like a, you know, an elementary stage and I can watch it progress with my input and my decisions, maybe I'm more likely to want to vote. First impression of caucus night, O'Byrne says it could be less confusing. He's not wrong. The process is complicated. Tuesday's precinct caucuses is the first step in a four-step process. Each precinct voted for delegates to go on to the next stage. Eventually, a select few will reach the state assembly in April, where they'll actually get to select candidates for the primary ballot. O'Byrne supports U.S. Representative Jared Polis for governor. O'Byrne says it's because Polis is part of the LGBTQ community, which he feels needs greater representation in politics. Having someone like him in office might, I don't know, balance out equality that we need and, you know, deal with some of these issues. Democrats were still tallying results of the governor's race straw poll late last night, but most hands at Alameda High seem to be in the air for former state treasurer Kerry Kennedy, not Congressman Jared Polis or former state senator Mike Johnston, both considered favorites. Virginia Lindemann and her family were there to show support for Kennedy. Lindemann says her support of education issues makes her their top candidate. I'm also really excited about a female. I think, you know, we are in an era right now where we need more female leaders. First-timer Pamela Ringstrom recently moved from New York, where there isn't a caucus. She found it an opportunity to hear more about local issues. But as an introvert, she says the process was somewhat terrifying. I had to meet strangers and talk to them and debate politics with people I don't know. And that was a very uncomfortable feeling. Ringstrom was there to show support for state senator Mike Johnston. But with six Democrats running for governor, Ringstrom says it's hard for her to pick a horse. It's a big field. It's a wide field. Um, But I think that the talent and the experience even in the candidates is really impressive. So I, I don't think we can go wrong here. Even with the high caucus turnout, some were hesitant to say if they thought a Democrat would win come November. Lucas O'Byrne noted that while the Denver metro area is mostly blue, the rest of the state still votes red. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis with the Democrats in Jefferson County. And I'm Anne-Marie Awad in El Paso County. Here at a caucus in Peyton, just outside of Colorado Springs, it was a quieter scene. 
None of the Republicans attending has strong feelings about the governor's race. Going So who would like to be a state delegate? Take nominations for that. Again, you just nominate yourself. The state. <laughs> anybody, anybody? And even though many had opinions on the 5th Congressional District race... We have any, anybody who wants to nominate themselves to be a delegate to the 5th Congressional. Okay. This is the 449th Precinct Caucus. Precinct leader Carrie Geithner says her last caucus in the 449th was much more lively. The last caucus that I attended was, of course, a presidential year, and it was before our precinct was broken into... Um, three smaller precincts, and there were about 40. Uh, So I expected that we would have a third or possibly less, considering that it was not a presidential year. Five. That's how many showed up, including Geithner. And they all seemed mostly concerned with county-level races. Wanda Jean Little, a retired social worker who was elected to be a county delegate, says she's still making up her mind about the governor's race. Obviously, I'm opposed to our governor. I don't care for him, but he's not running again. So I haven't made a decision on which governor on the Republican side that I'm going to support. I'm still looking at all of their literature, and I've met a couple of them. Folks had more to say about the race for incumbent Congressman Doug Lamborn's seat. Namely, many like Tamara Dagenet seem to support one of his Republican rivals, Daryl Glenn. I spoke with Daryl Glenn. He's retired Air Force, and he promised me that he would back the president 100%. That's Dagenet's criteria for picking a candidate in the local sheriff's race, too. For the handful of people who turned out at this precinct, the focus now appears to be county politics and national politics. In the next few months, the many candidates running for governor will have to get them to care about something in between. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. When the Paralympics start on Friday, two friends from Colorado will be looking to defend gold. Nico Landeros and Tyler Karen are high school buds from Berthoud. In 2007, they were driving home from a dance and got a flat tire. As they pulled out a spare, another car hit them. Both were gravely injured. When they recovered, they took up sled hockey. Landeros already has two golds in that sport. Karen has one. I spoke to them before they left for Pyeongchang, South Korea. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, Yeah. thanks for having us. We're super excited. Nico, a little bit of an off-the-wall question here. I saw a team picture with you guys in it from 2014, and you're all pretending to chomp down on those medals. Have you ever actually taken a bite? Uh, I have taken a big bite. We usually have a kind of a team party after to celebrate um, our victory. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a tradition to, to bite down on it. But when you have a couple sodas, uh, I think you actually do it sometimes. So I've got a, on both my medals, i got a, some bite marks in them. Actually, it's kind of funny. And is gold as soft as we think it is? Uh, it's a little harder than uh, than you think it okay. is, but it is it is softer than you think because you do uh, you do end up seeing your teeth in it. You've all been in Chicago for most of the last three months. Uh, hold up with the team to practice for these Olympics, Tyler. What's the likelihood uh, of another gold? You know, we have a very good chance of winning gold, but we just got to play as a team and everybody's got to do their job and bring home another one. The two of you were first teammates as wrestlers at Berthoud High School, north of Denver. Then one night, as I said, you both went out to a high school dance and there was an accident. Nico, Tyler, you suffered very similar injuries, I understand. Uh, Nico, what, what were those? 
when we got hit, we uh, both lost a leg on impact immediately, and they were trying to save some of our other leg. It was mangled to a point where uh, there was no going back. I think in the end, you know, we're super happy um, with having prosthetics. We walk just fine. We get from A to B perfect. And, you know, we go golfing and people don't even notice <laughs> that we don't have legs. A lot of times, you know, we're getting yelled at. The game warden's out there yelling at us, hey, get off the green, you know, because we always have our carts right by the green. And then they look down, they're like, oh, never mind. You guys are fine. Tyler, what, what was your motivation to walk again, which you would have to learn to do on prosthetics? Well, I guess my motivation was because it was my senior year and I just wanted to walk across the stage for uh, graduation. So our goal was to be able to walk by uh, the end of May and we ended up doing that. So, oh. Well, let, awesome. let's stop living in the past here. And I, I want to know what sled hockey is. Will you explain that to me, Nico? So sled hockey is just hockey. You know, all the rules are the exact same. The physicality is the same. The game is the same. Pretty much everything is the exact same other than we're sitting on a sled um, with two blades underneath us. Just like in regular hockey, you have two skates. You have your sticks. You have two. You have to be kind of ambidextrous. But once you get it down, you become a great player. And, and, and so those sticks that help you propel are also what you hit the puck with? Yep. Picks are at the bottoms of the sticks. And then at the top is a blade. Tyler, I have to think your arms are just huge. <laughs> it's pretty much all upper body strength. <laughs> yeah. But How did you get into sled hockey, Tyler? After our accident, the Colorado Avalanche sponsor a sled hockey team. The coach of that team actually came to the hospital and visited us. And we ended up trying it a month or two after the hospital, but we didn't really like it at first. But then we came back probably a year later. Or Nico did. You know, he was just a natural at it. He was doing real good, and everybody was already talking about him, you know? So I was like, oh, shoot, I want to try that. And then we both just fell in love. Tyler, would you guys describe yourselves as almost like brothers at this point? I mean, you've shared so much yeah. together. No, yeah, we are pretty, we are brothers pretty much, so I consider my brother. What do you think has sustained that friendship? I mean, it's, it's not a guarantee you guys would get along, you know? <laughs> We've probably got more pints of blood in us that are the same than... Uh, anyone else you know we lost a ton of blood and and we are pretty much blood brothers you know when we got hurt i think it uh it really made our bond even bigger you know our families came together and powered through something that a lot of people couldn't do and we learned how to walk we learned how to uh, play hockey we learned how to ski we learned how to just get into a car and drive even now we do everything together so it's kind of a, uh, you know we only we live 15 minutes apart we're like brothers and uh you know we get on each other's nerves too and that makes it fun Nico, these are your third Paralympics. Uh, when you won that first gold medal in 2010, uh, what was that like? I mean, I wonder how much you looked back on the journey that brought you there. It was pretty surreal to even be able to do that. And when you're there for the first time, it's pretty wild. You're excited. And, you know, I had my whole family there, his whole family there. I was on cloud nine. And coming home to the support that we had, it was unreal. You know, we've had so much support. Gentlemen, thanks so yeah. much. Good luck. In Pyeongchang, yep. Nico Landeros and Tyler Karen will compete in sled hockey at the Paralympics in South Korea. Faces haunt Leela Morrison of Windsor, Colorado. The faces of soldiers she saw die in World War II. Morrison was a U.S. Army nurse. She treated wounded soldiers across Western Europe 
And for years, she says it was too painful to talk about the horrors she witnessed. Now, 95, she doesn't hold back, hoping that when people hear her story, they'll understand the high price of freedom. We spoke as CPR News documents the stories of Coloradans who survived World War II. And to note that uh, this conversation may include some graphic descriptions. And Leela, welcome to the program. Thank you. You grew up in Blue Ridge, Georgia, one of seven siblings. Right. When did you know you wanted to be a nurse? Oh, I think I was just born to be a nurse. And I was happy all through my career, never sorry that I was a nurse. Never sorry. You graduated from nursing school in 1943 at age 22 and uh, shortly after volunteered to be a nurse for the U.S. Army. Right. Why? Well, I was young (laughs) and uh, single, and my mother died before I remember, and my father had died when I was 20. And even though I had wonderful siblings, I just felt like I could go and it would be easier not having a mother and dad worrying about you. Hmm. What was training like to be a part of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps? Well, it was really different than anything I'd ever been through. And by the way, I had basic training right here in Denver at Larry Field. Oh, I see. You've come full circle by being in Colorado. Yes. And, uh, oh, we had to learn to salute and march and the regulations of the Army, which I was completely ignorant of before. But it, it was a lot of fun. We laughed uh, because we'd do things wrong. We had a sergeant that was teaching us how to march and right face, left face, you know, about face. Yeah. And we didn't know what that meant. And sometimes if he said right face, maybe I did a left one. And I'd be looking at the one behind me right in the face, and it would be so funny. I didn't realize that nurses in the Army learned all that stuff. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were assigned to the 118th Evacuation Hospital. This is a mobile medical unit that provided emergency care in the field. That's right. You were first sent to England, eventually yes. to Normandy, France, mm-hmm. arriving not too long after the D-Day attack there. Yep. What was on your mind when you arrived in Normandy? I realized and had read a lot about the boys that first landed there, you know, on June the 6th. Omaha Beach. Mm -hmm. And as we walked in that sand up Normandy, I couldn't help but think of all the boys, young boys that had given their lives. And I just felt like I was on sacred land walking across where those fellows had walked and given their all. It was during the Battle of the Bulge, which began in December 1944, that you had your first real patience in in the theater of war. This was Nazi Germany's final attack on the Western Front, Mm -hmm. a surprise assault on the Allied forces in the Ardennes Forest, Mm -hmm. and it was one of the bloodiest and most brutal battles of the war, Yes, with soldiers trying to hold off a German advance in freezing temperatures. Well, we were, like you said, a mobile unit. We lived in tents the whole time we were there, and our hospital was in tents. And how often would that move? We moved often. 
as our lines would move. Yeah. And uh, only two times we had to fall back because we went too close. And they said, oh, you nurses can't be up this close. Go back. We can't protect you here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And, and, and what do you remember about treating those soldiers? See, I was in the shock and pre-op uh, tent. We only took care of emergencies. And uh, we d- could not give them whole blood because at that time they had no means of preserving whole blood and get it clear over there. What could you administer? Plasma. Plasma. That was the next best thing. And we gave many, many units of plasma. And this speaks to the shock that they're in. Yes. A lot of them lost a lot of blood. You couldn't send them to surgery in shock. They had to be out of that. If that unit was moving so often Mm -hmm. and you had patients who couldn't move, Mm -hmm. how did you move a, a whole sort of mobile hospital well, we had 250 uh, regular soldiers assigned to us, and that's what they did. But they so, would have to move the patients, too. Oh, no. 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 We waited till maybe we'd be there two or three days, maybe a week, and uh, we wouldn't have sent them back unless we knew they could make it. Okay, so... Uh, you, you sort of clear out that class of soldiers, and then you pick up and move on. Yes. Got it. What kinds of injuries do you remember? It would be everything from shots through the head, through the body, through the legs. And by the way, I'd, out of the Battle of the Bulge, we had many frostbites. It was the coldest winter that it had in 50 years there. And... Uh, Many fellows lost their limbs from the frostbite. Mm. How scared were they when they got to you? Oh, they didn't seem scared at all. They would tell us about home and about the things they were missing and how anxious they were to get back to things. And one that I remember in particular uh, whipped out his billfold and showed me a picture of a little boy, three years old, and he said, this is my son, and I've never seen him. Oh, he'd been born after he was deployed. Mm-hmm. My goodness. Did that young man make it? Do you remember? You know, that was one disadvantage we had, being in emergency only. We never knew how they turned out. How did you, if you did, try to comfort the soldiers as you treated them? Well, you tried to be cheerful, tried to have a smile on your face. We would take time to look at their pictures and listen to them a little. Were they excited to see a woman? Oh, yes. They were very excited, and they worried about us. They said, oh, you girls shouldn't be up this far. You're far too close to the front, you know. You shouldn't be here. And we'd reassure them we were okay. (laughs) You'd reassure them. Yeah. Do you remember close calls? We were fortunate. They never bombed our hospital. Mm. We had a great big red cross on the top of each of our tents. And that was, at least for you, that was honored, apparently. Well, that was telling the enemy we were med and we, we were unarmed. Would you ever treat enemy soldiers? Yes, We had some. Tell me about that. Well, I did feel a little funny treating them, but you know they're God's creation too, 
and maybe they're there because they had to be. Uh, I've, I've looked at many of the prisoners, and I would think one-on-one, -on -one, I know we could be good friends. I know that enemy likes a nice home. He likes a full stomach. He likes a nice, clean bed at night, just like I do and you do. So I had empathy for them, too. So but, these are prisoners of war yes. that had been captured by the U.S. Boy, you're making me tear up on that one, uh -oh. Layla. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, no, don't be sorry. You want the truth, though. I do want the truth. Yeah. We are speaking with Leela Morrison of Windsor. She was a U.S. Army nurse in World War II. She crisscrossed Europe with a mobile hospital unit treating soldiers on the front lines. In April 1945, Morrison experienced something she still grapples with today, her visit to the Buchenwald concentration camp in Germany just after its liberation. More than 50,000 people died there. We arrived in Weimar. See, it was just outside Weimar, Germany. And... Uh, they told us Buchenwald was there. We, we, we were unaware of that. And uh, they said, uh, this hospital unit will have to go down there in the morning and help out. So the next morning we were ready to go, and they called us and said, no, you nurses can't come. The doctors were there, and they said, conditions are so deplorable, we can't let you nurses come in here. What were they afraid of with you going in? Seeing the inside of that concentration camp. I think they were just trying to save us some heartache. Uh -huh. That was where uh, they did so many um, in the laboratory there. Medical did, experiments? Uh-huh. Many of them. Oh, my. And with drugs and everything. So they had cleared the bodies away yes, before you arrived. they had. So we went down the next day. What do you remember seeing when you arrived? A lot of horror. A lot. Something you'll never forget. And uh, introduced us to a man from Czechoslovakia, and he had been a prisoner there for quite a while. And he took us all through, even underground. Uh, the thing that impressed me so much, I think, was the crematory. Uh, it was up on a little incline, and it was a building, a brick building. He showed us the window where they told the prisoners to uh, take the clothes off and slide down this slide into the basement. And uh, there was a big stick there, real thick, a lot thicker than a baseball bat. And as they slid down, a guard stand there hit them in the back of the head. And knocked him out. Oh, my goodness. I think they gave him gas in there. Yeah, yeah. And um, then uh, had an elevator up to the ground floor. And there, it, it was a huge oven. Best I can remember, I think it was eight on each side. And afterwards, I walked down this little hill. I looked back, and I thought... This is a factory of murder. How in the world could you explain something like that? Innocent people. The Jewish people are just like you and me. They love a good full stomach. They love their children, their family. They're no different than we are. 
Were you able to be of any help as a nurse when you got to the camp? Were there people who needed your services? Inside the camp? Yeah. No. Uh, well, I'm sure they were, but if that, they'd be very weak. Oh, every one of them, you wondered how they could even stand up and breathe. I've never seen such thin people. So you didn't really do much treatment at the no, camp? No, not inside there, no. They had cleaned it up pretty good. Well, you see, the people were anxious to get out that could, and the others, most of them were too weak or already gone. You left Europe in 1945. What do you remember about coming back to the United States? We were mighty thankful to get back to the States, and one of the things you'll probably be surprised at was the thing that impressed us so much as we looked out from the ship coming into the harbor, all the windows were in. We hadn't seen anything but all the buildings across Europe were all blown out. Oh, the fact that buildings had windows was such a different sight from what you'd seen. Well, that's true, because we hadn't seen them at all for the whole time. And we'd say, oh, look, look, there's no... No uh, windows blown out. They all have glass in them. You had been so used to the war zone, you forgot what it looked like not to be in one. It was wonderful. Oh, how great it was to put our feet on American soil. Now, you'd expected to head to the Pacific. Yes. To treat soldiers fighting Japanese troops. Mm -hmm. But you never wound up going. Oh, no. We were some of the first troops that came home. And they said, the reason we're taking you home first is because you're seasoned troops. You know what's going on and you know how to work. Uh, So we're going to take you back to the States first, and you'll have 30 days leave and then 30 days of more training because working in the islands would be a lot different than going across Europe. Yeah, I imagine a whole host of different diseases, different issues. Yeah, Uh that's right. And then President Truman ordered the U.S. military to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. He did. That changed the course of the war, and it changed your future. It sure did, and we were so thankful. I think for those who did not live through World Mm -hmm. War II, it's hard to imagine... Uh, that you could find gratitude, I suppose, in the dropping of the atomic bombs. Tell me about that. It was strange because they assigned each one of us to a camp close to our home to have our orders cut for a 30-day leave. And so I was sent to uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, while we were sitting on the side of the track uh, in a troop train, we had stopped there, and some little boys came by, and they said, Hey, did you soldiers hear about that great big bomb that the uh, U.S. dropped on Japan? We didn't believe them. We oh. said, What do you mean? Oh, it was a great big bomb. One bomb would, would uh, annihilate a whole town. And we just laughed because we'd never heard of such thing. What did you think about these bombs that sounded like something out of science fiction but had actually been real? Well, of course, first it was just unbelief. But we found out it was true, and we were so thankful. They estimated our 
casualties at a million and a half. Mm. So imagine a million and a half more casualties. That's what you focused on was the idea that so many more could die if the war continued. Right. Mm. right. Did you continue being a nurse, Leela? Oh, yes. I'm even still a nurse today. Oh. I live in a old folks' home, and uh, it's surprising I've been retired for at least 40 years. And um, some of the people that live there will come up and, oh, last night I had this and I couldn't sleep. And uh, they get, the doctor gave me these pills. Do you think that'll help me? <laughs> Once a nurse, always a nurse? Well, that's for sure. Yep. You speak about the war a lot these days. Uh, what do you think is the most important thing for younger people to understand? Well, I think to put it kind of in simple words, but it isn't simple. Freedom is not free. We paid a real high price for it, just like anybody that's in war. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. I feel it's my honor to remind people of what our country's gone through. And I hope that I can impress a few how thankful we are that we're Americans. Leela Morrison of Windsor was a U.S. Army nurse during World War II. You can hear more of our conversations with World War II veterans from Colorado, as well as Holocaust survivors at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. U.S. coal jobs got a boost last year under President Trump, but not in Colorado. Coal jobs here stayed flat. CPR's Grace Hood has poured over the numbers and spoke with my colleague Mike Lamp. So what is the job picture like in Colorado? Well, depending on how you slice the numbers, they say different things. So quarterly comparisons show a slight increase in overall coal jobs. That includes everything from miners to front office workers. If you compare annual averages, there was actually a slight decrease. So I'm going to call that flat in terms of job growth over the last year. At the same time, we saw production went slightly up. You know, we also saw a mine shutter. That was the New Horizon mine. And that's because the power plant it supplies in Nucla is slated to shut down. Now, coal jobs were a big part of the Trump campaign. He promised to bring them back. And now what are industry advocates saying about uh, the president's track record so far? There are different takes in different parts of the country. Folks in West Virginia saw a really big increase in jobs, so they're pretty upbeat. And just as a reminder, Trump has changed Obama-era policy on coal. So things like he lifted a mining moratorium on federal lands. Trump has also said that he'll roll back an Obama-era effort to make coal-fired power plants cleaner. I spoke with Stan Dempsey, who heads up the Colorado Mining Association, and he says what mines remain in Colorado are in good shape. I'm feeling confident that we've reached 
stability in terms of the operation of the six remaining coal mines in Colorado. I think all the mines are healthy. I think they've got potential not only to serve their primary customers, but secondary customers. Dempsey mentions primary and secondary customers, and that's definitely something to pay attention to in the future. And what does that mean, primary and secondary customers? So primary customers are things like coal-fired power plants. Since coal-fired power plants aren't being built in the U.S., though, there's not going to be new ones anytime soon here. So it's all about finding new markets, and those secondary markets are going to be overseas in places like China and Taiwan. And some existing coal-fired plants are going away, and there's one in Pueblo, for example, that could be shut down by 2025. And what does the future of that power plant mean for Colorado coal? Well, you know, not much. It's actually supplied from Wyoming's Powder River Basin. So Wyoming mines, they're just a powerhouse in the region. And, you know, they have even a bigger problem than Colorado. I spoke with Rob Godby. He's an University of Wyoming energy economist. And the real challenge for the future of the coal industry isn't policy set by the president. Godby says it's just the economics of coal versus natural gas, wind and solar. Including the financing, a brand new wind farm will be cheaper to run than an already paid for coal-fired power plant. You know, it's important to note that there's other Colorado power plants slated for closure that run off of Colorado coal. So there's going to be a direct effect here. They just have to find new customers elsewhere. And what about the changing economics of energy? What are we seeing with the price of wind and solar compared to coal in Colorado? One thing that's just been generating a tremendous amount of buzz on my beat is, you know, the low cost for some recently submitted wind and solar bids to Excel Energy. Excel Energy is the state's largest utility, and they're asking the PUC for permission to go to 55 percent renewable energy. And there was just this overwhelming response. Backers thought that wind bids at maybe $20 per megawatt hour would be competitive. And we were looking at submitted bids that had a median price of $18 per megawatt hour. And the same is true for solar bids. So it seems like wind and solar can really hold their own against coal from a financial standpoint. And what does that mean for the future of Colorado coal? Under three more years of the Trump administration, that's going to be steady on the policy front compared to the Obama administration. But I'm also hearing from economists that cheaper and cheaper prices of renewables are going to close more coal-fired power plants. The one wild card here is the recent tariff that Trump imposed on the solar industry that could make solar more expensive, but we just don't know how that's exactly going to play out. I think the one thing that's really clear here is that coal mines in Colorado don't have a whole lot of business left in the state, and a lot of mines um, in Colorado that have really existed for the sole purpose of fueling coal-fired power plants here. So I don't really see any new ones coming up anytime soon. That is our energy reporter, Grace Hood, talking with Mike Lamp about the future of Colorado's coal industry. Just off I-70 in Idaho Springs, there's a big red building I've passed a bunch of times. Maybe you have to sort of stair steps up the hill. It's the old Argo Mill and Tunnel. And when Mary Jane Lovely and Bob Boland saw it was for sale, they couldn't contain themselves. This is like walking into a Jules Verne or an H.G. Wells movie. You cannot believe what you hear and what you think and what you feel when you go through here. They, along with Denver developer Dana Crawford, who's famous for restoring Denver Union Station and Larimer Square, are the new owners. And they have big plans for Argo to build a hotel and convention center, housing for different income levels. They want retail, too, and park space. 
What won't change is the five-story red mill. Lovely and Boland gave me a tour, and when we stepped inside, we were surrounded by wooden and steel beams and an imposing stone wall. So steampunk looking. It is. Hey, that is our middle name, steampunk. We are going for that. Absolutely. I mean, it looks like the set of a Tim Burton movie. Uh, It (laughs) it it does, does, doesn't it? Yeah. And all of this will stay, along with curios from the golden age of mining in Idaho Springs, like a dynamite heater. Because you couldn't light dynamite when it was frozen, they had to warm it over... They would put this over a fireplace, and this would be water. It almost looks like a honeycomb. And Doesn't so it? Each of the holes is where you'd put dynamite to warm it up. Right. Talk about scary. Here's a drill. It's called the Widowmaker. That, uh, that sounds ominous. Yes, that is a Widowmaker because m- miners died of the silicosis that that would collect in their lungs, and that was why it was called the Widowmaker. The building and the contraptions inside weren't all that drew Lovely and Boland to the property, Right up behind the Argo is a network of trails and bike trails and things that people don't even know exist. But you can ride easily from here to Central City. It's a three and a half mile hike. So we're going to be connective to the Platte River and to Summit County from here. So you'll be able to ride your bike up here or ride downhill from here. And one thing that Bob and I don't talk about much, but we're talking about a gondola going all the way up here. A gondola that is yeah. uh, from the Argo up to some of the places where you could bike or walk or hike. Right, That's exactly. Right. Exactly right. All right, you've got these iconic red buildings you can see from I-70. And right. what's your hope for the place? I always feel Idaho Springs has been an ignored town. I feel like the Argo Mill has been an ignored, amazing, historic site. And we immediately said, we need 900 hotel rooms, we need 600 housing units in, in less than a 10-mile radius, so this should be doable. What's the need for a hotel and the housing here? There is nothing really between Golden, Lakewood, and Summit County. And if you know that there's 18 million cars a day going by here, 14 million gamblers over the other side in Central City and Blackhawk. It's a given the biggest. We used to be the center for hotels, et cetera, before the tunnel. And now they're all occupied by long-term people or or whatever. We just don't have any high-end hotel rooms. So we have a need for over 600 rooms. What about the residents? People can't find a place to live here. Our teachers, our nurses, our doctors, our service employees. Even we've got this full spectrum of housing from high-end to low-end but there's nothing for anybody to buy. It's, it's definitely a uh, supply and demand thing, and we don't have any supply. People commute, Bojo's Pizza, for example, with 100 employees, 50% of them commute up the hill. That is to say from Metro Denver. Correct, yeah. And what um, will be the affordability of this housing? Well, it's going to be the full spectrum of what they claim as workforce housing to relatively high-end housing. So we'll have the full spectrum. I suppose to some extent, if you think a teacher who teaches here can live here, that reduces some car time. Absolutely. It also makes them a part of the community. One of the big things that we don't like is teachers and policemen and everyone else living outside and not understanding the community. The homes and the hotel and convention center would be built on a Superfund site. You see, large swaths of Clear Creek and Gilpin counties got that designation in the 1980s because of the hundreds of shuttered, leaking mines in the area. Who wants to live on an old Superfund site? Wait till you walk up and see the views. It's very safe. We know that we can build on it. And of course, we wouldn't have done this if we didn't know it couldn't be safe. 
And of course, Superfund means that it was cleaned up. Absolutely. Yep. Is this just the gentrification of Idaho Springs? I mean, when I got here today, I took a dirt road along Clear Creek, and there was a lot of charm to how undeveloped and rural it feels. Isn't this just the, dare I say it, the the Denverification of Idaho Springs? Well, you know, Dana Crawford would say that Idaho Springs is part of Denver because we're a lot closer than Highlands Ranch or Louisville or something. This is Dana Crawford, the storied redeveloper, Union Station, Larimer Square, a lot of the iconic places in Denver she was behind. Right. And if you notice, she's kept their sense of place. So our whole goal, once she became enamored with Idaho Springs, is to probably make the iconic Argo Mill, the most amazing historic site in town, and to build plenty of affordable workforce housing as well as the high-end housing so that we can have the full spectrum of people that live here. I mean, that's what makes Union Station successful. That's what makes Larimer Square. That's what makes all these neighborhoods successful. So we're already afraid of the gentrification, but we just have to plan it properly. I am dying to know what it costs to buy an old mill and tunnel. Were you, will you tell me? No, nope, that's a secret. <laughs> we got too many other people interested. <laughs> uh, ballpark? No. Okay. <laughs> I can tell you that we've put well over a million into it already, just in our planning. Now, before we go, Bob Boland opens a massive door to show us one more thing the tunnel that's just above the mill. It's over four miles long and connected the Argo to the mines. Inside, dim light reveals rock walls. A flood in this tunnel in 1943 killed four people and was a big reason the Argo closed. Boland, a lifelong resident of Idaho Springs, has fond memories here. He used to play in the shuttered mill as a kid, and his grandmother told him about the town's horse-drawn hearse. The hearse had a different rattle to it than the ore wagons and the buckboards and the buggies and all that. And I remember her telling me that that rattle was so distinctive that people would come out and follow it to the mine or the mill because they knew somebody died, but they didn't know who. And they all had workers everywhere. So it was really a pretty pregnant story. Uh, And this happened time and time again as she grew up through the years. He wants to honor those who died at the mill in some permanent way, but he hopes happier memories are made here in the future with that steampunk edge. Steam and steel and rivets are our heritage. Bob Boland and Mary Jane Lovely own the Argo Mill and Tunnel in Idaho Springs, along with Denver developer Dana Crawford. See what their project would look like at CPR.org. They hope to break ground this year with a rough completion date of 2022. Until then, the mill and tunnel are open for tours. Finally today, Betty Hoover and Peggy Copham are twins who've rooted for the University of Colorado teams longer than most people have been alive. They're 93 and still cheer on the buffs at many home games, decked out in matching outfits and waving gold pom-poms. Peggy Copham says their lifelong love of sports started early in far northeastern Colorado, the little town of Haxton. Vic Vela has their story. It was like the movie, Friday Night Lights, that the whole town supports all of the sports activities of the high school. 
And so that was the beginning of it, I guess, where we just grew up in liking sports. But they left Haxton during the Great Depression when their father's business failed. After a few moves, Betty says the family ended up in Boulder around 1940. And that's when we became acquainted and loyal fans of University of Colorado. And you go to almost every major sporting event at CU. Now that's loyalty. Um, <laughs> we, we are loyal fans. Well, and it's fun. <laughs> Betty, you've been to a lot of games. What are some of the most exciting moments in CU history that really stood out for you? Um, at the Orange Bowl, when we beat Notre Dame, that was a lot of fun. That was January 1st, 1991, when CU football won its first and only national championship. But let me just intercede here that one of the worst moments was when Notre Dame beat us that first year in the Orange Bowl. Oh, yeah. It took us six months to get over that. <laughs> and at that time, I vowed that I was never going to let football affect my life that much again. <laughs> You need to teach a course because oh, I need to learn some of that. Oh, it was terrible. I was so disappointed and I just couldn't get over it. But <laughs> the next year, we came out on top, and that was really, really exciting. Let me ask the two of you, please explain how you dress for games because you've established yourselves as perhaps the most recognizable CU fans <laughs> in all of Colorado. We call each other, telephone. Ma Bell helped us out on that. And what do we? But we're together almost every day. And what what do we want to wear tomorrow? And so you guys both you like to dress the same? Yeah. Well, we dressed alike as we were growing up, right? And we would not go out of the house without everything being the same. We just until we married, and then, of course, it's very impractical to call and see what you're wearing today, you know, changing diapers. <laughs> so, but then after we became widows, we started dressing alike again, and now we're very uncomfortable if we don't have the same thing on. That leads me to my next question. Uh, Betty, what's special about the bond between twins that maybe the rest of us can't understand? Well, we've been together since we were conceived, and uh, there's a lot of trust uh, that's just understood. You agree with that, Peggy? Yeah, yeah, yes, I will. And uh, being best friends, maybe. We feel like we can tell each other a secret, but we're not telling anybody. <laughs> One time somebody asked me about what do we give each other for birthday gifts. I said, we don't give each other gifts. That's like giving myself a present. So, <laughs> That's true. That's incredible. Well, yes. let me ask the two of you, because you're so, you strike me as so vibrant and, and your energy is amazing that you can still go to all these games. At 93. <laughs> at 93. Please give me your secret on how you stay so vibrant at your age, Peggy. We were brought up thinking positive, not thinking negative thoughts, and to enjoy life. And I, I, I would say that's mainly it, and our faith. You know, our faith gives us a lot of stability peace, tranquility, so you can enjoy life and not look on the dark side of things. How does the CU fight song go? 
fight, see you down the field, see you must win. Fight, fight for victory. That's Betty Hoover and Peggy Copham, 93-year-old twin sisters and longtime fans of the Colorado Buffaloes. I'm Vic Vela. This is CPR News. Shoulder to shoulder, we will fight, 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 fight. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. We're CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR.